get it. Monday, September 14th, 2020. Born the Battle, brought to you by the Department of Veterans Affairs, the podcast that focuses on inspiring veteran stories and puts a high on important resources, offices, and benefits for our veterans. I am your host, Marine Corps veteran Tanner Iskra. Hope everyone had a great week outside of podcast land. Uh, Labor Day, you know, it's great to have that extra day off until you get back into the office and you have that extra day of work to do. And you have one less day to do it in. Oh, well, it was a good barbecue anyways. Got a recent email from our listener, Blue Hog. Love hearing from him. He sent an email into our inbox here at podcast at va.gov. It says, hey, I'm sure Born the Battles have been promoted numerous times on Rally Point and other sites dedicated to our military and military veterans. Well, now it's numerous plus one. I just posted a link there for other boomer vets (laughs) like me who are not always so up to speed on online resources. Always enjoy the cast. I like that. I have an alarm set up on my phone to remind me to check on Mondays for the most recent one. Thanks, and keep doing what you're doing. That's from MB Blue Hog Ingersoll, Ride Captain, PGR, U.S. Air Force Veteran from 73 to 83, American Legion Post 345, Department of Texas. Blue Hog, it's always good to hear from you, buddy. Uh, Rally Point is a great partner in that they share many of our episodes on their command post. But I'm always grateful to have another advocate on the platform. And I love how much you uh, your dedication to the podcast. Thank you so much uh, for being a dedicated listener. And thank you so much for helping to spread the word on what this podcast is all about. Uh, good hearing from you, brother. Talking about advocacy on Apple Podcasts, receive some additional ratings. Thank you. Appreciate that. But we have not received a review in almost a month. Uh, If you haven't yet, please feel free to post one on Apple Podcasts. The more that this show is rated and especially reviewed, not only lets me know if this show is going in the right direction for you, but it also puts us higher in the algorithms and allows more veterans to discover the information provided not only in the interviews, but in the news releases. Speaking of news releases, it's been a couple of weeks, so I'm going to skim through them more. Briefer, more briefly, more briefly. I'm going to skim through them uh, more briefly than I usually do. Uh, if you want to read all the press releases or all the news or words from the horse's mouth, you can find them at va.gov forward slash OPA forward slash press rel. That's P R E S S R E L. All right. First one says for immediate release. VA's digital COVID-19 screening for veterans, employees, aides, and low infection rate. The U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs announced the use of digital screening at VA healthcare facilities and increased telehealth has enabled the department to dramatically increase the rate of COVID-19 testing for veterans and employees. To date, VA has tested more than 576,000 veterans and employees for COVID-19, one of the many aggressive steps used to prevent the transmission of the virus. The Veterans Health Administration's COVID-19 employee infection rate is less than 1% of its workforce, much lower than other healthcare systems. In addition, veterans can request a COVID-19 test by sending a secure message to the provider via My Healthy Vet, scheduling an appointment online, or calling their provider by phone. Veterans must be enrolled in VA healthcare to receive a COVID-19 test through VA. There is no copay. And results typically take two to four days, and the medical provider will contact the veteran with the results. Veterans who test positive should monitor their symptoms, stay in touch with their medical provider, and avoid contact with anyone else. All right, second one says, for immediate release, VA's Board of Veterans Appeals reaches appeal decisions goal early. The U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs announced recently that the Board of Veterans Appeals has exceeded its annual goal of issuing 91,500 appeals decisions in fiscal year 2020. The board reached this goal weeks ahead of schedule and is back on track to issue more decisions. It has also provided veterans the option to choose virtual telehearings, allowing them to continue to hold hearings before a board in a safe, no-contact environment. For more information on virtual hearings, go to bva.va.gov and look for the telehealth fact sheet on the board's homepage. Okay, next one says, 
For immediate release, VA announces a new clinical trial for veterans with COVID-19. Researchers are to study blood plasma for treating seriously ill patients. Uh, VA recently announced a new clinical trial to study patients as part of a larger effort to give veterans faster access to potential COVID-19 treatments and test the treatment's effectiveness. The trial will enroll about 700 veterans with COVID-19 who are hospitalized at VA medical centers. A study team will randomize the study volunteers to receive either convalescent plasma or a saline placebo and track and assess recovery and effects of the treatment. Convalescent plasma is donated by people who have recovered from COVID-19 and have antibodies against the virus in their blood. The FDA stresses further evidence from rigorous trials, such as the new VA study, is critically important for establishing safety and efficacy. For more information on this study, visit research.va.gov and click on the research on COVID-19 little uh, bar towards the bottom right of the page. All right, next one says, for immediate release, VA dedicates Acadia National Cemetery in Maine. The U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs recently dedicated a new national cemetery in rural Jonesboro, Maine. Secretary Wilkie unveiled the dedication plaque for Acadia National Cemetery, the first national cemetery in the state to be open to new interments in nearly 60 years. Photos and videos of the dedication can be found at the National Cemetery Administration's Facebook All right, the next one says, for immediate release, VA offers electronic virtual assistant for veterans to connect faster with counselors. VA's new artificial intelligence platform, the Electronic Virtual Assistant, otherwise known as EVA, allows veterans to receive a timely response to basic questions, automated alerts, follow-up messages, appointment reminders, and the ability to schedule and reschedule appointments. The Veteran Readiness and Employment Service, which is VRNE, it used to be Revoke Rehab, completed their national deployment of EVA on August 11th. Participants will be allowed to submit documentation from a smartphone, tablet, or computer. Additionally, all correspondence through EVA will be included in the veteran's electronic file. Veterans receiving VRNE services will receive a text message or an email introducing EVA as VRNE's new electronic virtual assistant. Veterans must opt in to start using the service. Upon opt-in, EVA will be available immediately. For more information, visit va.gov forward slash VRE. Okay, next one. I've lost count. Uh, For immediate release, during Suicide Prevention Month, VA encourages supporters to be there for veterans and help connect them with resources. This September, the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs recognizes Suicide Prevention Month, highlighting VA's Be There campaign, reminding veterans and their loved ones that small actions can make a big difference to veterans going through difficult times. There is no special training needed to give a veteran hope. For more information and resources, visit BeThereForVeterans.com, all one word. And in support of Suicide Prevention Month, next week's Born the Battle interview We'll deal with that very topic, so stay tuned. All right, and the final one says, for immediate release, Forbes has named the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs one of America's best employers in 17 states in its second annual survey of Americans' best employers by state. Uh, That's all. If you want to know what states, go ahead and check out the Forbes article. And I'll concur. Uh, VA for me is a great place to work. Absolutely. So we always have careers.va.gov if you want to check out working for VA. All right. So back in episode 190, we talked about the VA Debt Management Center and how they were suspending or extending debts that veterans have incurred with VA. It's a good episode. And our guests shared a ton of great information. Uh, So go ahead and check it out when you get a chance, uh, if you haven't already. For this episode, I wanted to break down the center itself, what it does, and the culture surrounding it. I say culture because it's ran by two veterans that you heard back in episode 190. Debt Management Center's Director of Operations and Army Veteran Jason Hogue, and their overall director, Marine Veteran Joseph Schmidt. Enjoy. Uh, Joe, fellow Marine, um, Jason, Army, correct? Um, When and where did you two... gentlemen decide to join the service 
I'll take the first uh, portion of that question. I think for me, it was 1984. I had seen both my father serve in the Navy uh, post-World War II. I'm the youngest of eight family members. And I think for me, it was uh, giving back to my country in a way that really mattered to me. I grew up in a small town in Wisconsin, and there wasn't really much there outside of construction and some local industry. Mm-hmm. And I really did want to see the world. And when I met with the recruiter, uh, he had me at hello, and uh, uh, it was you know no looking back after that. So I did 24 years and very happy to serve. Wow. What was your what was your role? I was uh, enlisted uh, for the first 11 years as up to the gunnery, rank of gunnery sergeant. I was logistics and supply chain. And then I became a logistics officer through the Meritorious Commissioning Program. Yeah, I don't think that's around anymore. It's not uh, around anymore. I don't no, think a uh, gunny can go, hey, you know what? You're, I, I don't remember that in my time. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely not. Um, Jason. Yeah, for me, I guess it was in high school, um, having um, wanting to serve. And my father was a Air Force veteran. And then, um, you know, the... The 864 Apache came out about that time frame, and I had a goal to want to be a part of that. And so for me, that's how it started. Um, a little bit indirect at first uh, through the North Dakota National Guard, spent a few years doing that, and then uh, joined the ROTC program and ultimately um, went to Army Flight School and got the opportunity to fly the Apache. Gotcha. Full career as well? Uh, yes. Retirement? Yep. Very good. Very good. Um, gentlemen, how did you both find your way to becoming uh well, for you, uh, uh, Joe, the National Finance Director, is that, is that the proper title, National Finance Director? Yes, that's the you know, the Finance Director for the Department of Veterans Affairs at VA's Debt Management Center. Got you. And you, yeah. sir, Jason, you are the Director uh, of Operations Director for this? Director of Operations, Very yes. good, very good. Um, what does your office do? And, and I say this because when I first glanced at your office, uh, I saw it as just a debt collection arm of the VA when you first sent that email. And, and I... I think that's fair for, as, as an initial look. Um, and when I told my colleagues that I was interviewing the debt management office, there's, let's just say there was a lot of passion uh, behind the responses. And, and I, I think the first thing that any veteran or any American would ask is, why, why are you all doing this in the first place? And, and on the surface, it may look wrong to collect uh, money from veterans, especially say if the VA discovered an overpayment at no fault to the veteran. I'm, and I'm excluding those that knew that they were getting overpaid because unfortunately that does happen. Um, and, and that's taken away taxpayer money from people that need it. And that, of course, that's wrong. But, but I'm thinking of those family members that report on a death of a veteran to the VA, but still get payments. Uh, if it's no fault of the veteran or that family member, I think it's safe to say that collecting on that debt is sometimes morally wrong. But I also know that question is not fair to you guys because you guys don't make the rules at all. And after talking with you and how you described your office, I think your office is, is completely something else. And I would agree. And uh, but I do think there is a, as we talked about the ethical and the moral uh, piece of this business that we work through every single day, and we have amazing employees that do that wonderfully, and they're and they're highly trained to do that. I think for me, uh, and you asked what what got us into this business. For me, uh, my son was diagnosed at the age of three with something called sagittal synostosis. And we had to immediately, without any prior notice, save his life. Uh, saving his life cost about $1.3 million. He had to oh, have wow. a full cranial vault reconstruction. He had uh, 12 surgeons, both plastic and cranial facial reconstruction surgeons. And so my leaving my past job, uh, being the federal executive board director of the White House liaison to the state of Minnesota to come collect debt uh, for the Department of Veterans Affairs, and in many cases on veterans, uh, is really tied back to someone needs to really make sure that they're taken care of. Someone needs to make sure that while we have a legal obligation to collect overpayments on behalf of the federal government, the way we do that has to be tied to what we call compassion. And rather than being- It's important. It is important, yeah. and it and differentiates itself from those in the IRS or the Social Security Administration, and we partner with them closely, but it really is guiding the financial future of veterans to a better tomorrow, and we do that by working with each and every veteran on the repayment process. For me, getting into the role uh, maybe a little bit different, and so I retired from the Army. I was looking for opportunities uh, for service, uh, particularly because I didn't feel like I was done. I had more to give. Yeah. Um, my family and I retired in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area. An opportunity came open uh, with that management center, and so they offered me the opportunity uh, to join the team. I think one thing that we can share is uh, Joe and I and the rest of the veterans and our staff um, and, and the rest of the employees at Debt Management Center 
have really doubled down on to how to make our services better, how to improve the veteran experience, and really understanding how we got to where we were with legacy processes and legacy systems that are sometimes stovepiped, um, and developing into a, a modern um, system that takes in the veteran experience um, and the veteran individual circumstance into the situation and, and, and use that as part of problem solving. Um, and so I think the situation's much different than it used to be. Um, and we continue to use technology to make it better uh, as we move forward. And as a matter of fact, we have a Congress that's uh, very willing to work with us and we work with them um, to um, update U.S. statute so that um, we can create a more positive experience for veterans and how we handle overpayments. Yeah, you have to, you, you both have to, uh, one or I don't know if both of you have have had to testify on Capitol Hill to, on 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 the practices that this office does, um, and we'll get into that in a little bit. But um, you know, on, on some of the some of the examples that I brought up earlier, how can veterans and taxpayers petition say for like a federal law to change? Is that something that they would have to do to change some of the some of the rules that you have to abide by? I would go go through their constituent services, working with their local congressmen and congresswomen uh, to really make that uh, change. They can also reach out to the Department of Veterans Affairs. We have multiple veteran service organizations that are out there to support uh, not only the VA initiatives, but support the veteran every single day. And so they're their advocate on a larger scale, uh, both the when we think about the VFW, the American Legion, uh, Disabled American Veterans, uh, Order of the Purple Heart. Uh, they're all amazing. They do great work for them. And so I would really start with uh, a veterans advocacy agency. Uh, and then I would think about partnering with the disabled uh, or partner with the, the VA. Uh, we're a great resource to listen, to hear, and, and to take action in those areas. And we're really currently right now in Washington, D.C. with you today. Absolutely. Because I love that it's a, I know you're, you're in Minnesota, but you're here in person. This is awesome. Yeah, and it's wonderful, and thanks for having us. But I think it's one of the things we're working this week is with legislation, working with the House Veteran Affairs Committee and the Senate Veteran Affairs Committee and Office of Congressional uh, Liaison to really make sure we're doing smart things. And like Jason had said, to moving forward in an area to take care of veterans uh, to make a difference. Very good. Um, how can a veteran accrue a debt to the VA in the first place? Uh, Coming from active experience, uh, you know, when I was an admin, my first enlistment, I saw some Marines, you know, I knew some other, or I knew some other service members who who didn't rate like basic allowance for housing or maybe rated the single rate, but collected a married rate or, or, but that can't be the same thing here. Like how, how, how can uh, a veteran sometimes accrue a debt for the, to the VA? The most common way that it occurs is through drill pay currently. So if there's a drilling reservist and guardsman that's receiving compensation benefits from the VA. Uh, they're not entitled to those at the same time. Uh, so that's the number one cause. Interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. And going forward, um, in FY20, we're no longer going to create a debt for those. It's going to be an offset at the regional office, um, which should more expeditiously solve that imbalance between what the compensation was received and um, what DFAS paid out. And so they're moving towards having that a monthly reconciliation versus what it is now a yearly. Uh, so that's the most common common one. Uh, second would be uh, a dependency adjustment. Uh, so if somebody got married or divorced. Um, we're working hard to develop computer matching agreements through different federal agencies to try to prevent overpayments. So with the Social Security, Bureau of Prisons, Fugitive Felon. The hardest one in, um, is in the area of, of um, dependence. So there's no national registry that we can do a computer matching to determine when somebody was divorced or when somebody remarried. And so that one is really dependent upon the veteran providing that update um, to the VA. If for some reason that's untimely, then often it will create a debt. Um, in the area of schools, if a veteran were to reduce his or her rate of pursuit, so they started a semester with a full load and then decided to reduce that rate for some reason, um, that would create a debt as well. So that'd be another example on the education side. Very good, very good. Interesting. I didn't know some about some of these that you're, that you're talking about. Um, what's changed now? You took over the debt management office two years ago, and, and in your email you detailed some very some very good changes within your office. What can you can you for the listeners that don't know, what's changed in your office? Yeah, I think really it's our approach to veterans. Uh, they're the most important aspect to us. In the past, even our title of our folks who answer the phones were uh, were agents. We're not agents. We, we really serve as debt counselors. Uh, we listen to veterans when they call us. We expeditiously uh, support their needs. 
I think in the past uh, years with compensation and pension, what we had done is take an entire benefit check. And if I think you would agree, and uh, most Americans would agree, we take an entire benefit check to repay an overpayment from the uh, federal agency. Uh, that's a very difficult thing. Especially for some veterans that may live off that check, that one check or Social Security in that check. Absolutely. And- yeah, and we hear that quite a bit. And so what we did is we worked in there as a compensation of pension, put everybody in an automatic 12-month repayment plan. So we're not taking uh, people's checks uh, right away, the entire you know the entire check from the veteran, which that's critically important. I'd also say some of the things we did for those people who were involved in uh, hurricanes and wildfires that we most recently saw in California or, or any natural disaster, we work with them uh, to put their uh, debts in abeyance or a period of suspense for a period of up to six months, working with the Veterans Benefits administration. They were highly supportive of that. And veterans, too, in many cases, would like to really spend that money in a disaster on their family and not spend that on paying uh, the VA back. So let's really think about how we can actually be there for the veteran in a time of great need. And that's one great way we're doing it. I think the other thing is reaching out on many outreach events with not only veterans service organizations and school certifying officials, but reaching out with veterans in a meaningful way rewriting our letters in common, plain language so that when they get a letter from the Department of Veterans Affairs, they can easily make sense of that letter. And yeah. so we we didn't have all the answers ourselves. We did some great partnership with the Office of Evaluation Sciences, some really brilliant PhDs down at the University of Florida who said, if you're going to write these letters, we got to write these in a way that really makes sense. They're not over uh, overly legal, right? So we, we've done that too. And we continue to make improvements there. Uh, I think that's Predominantly, Jason, do you have any other thoughts? Just, again, changing the focus to improve the veteran experience, where I think before it was more focused on, you know, bringing the funds back to the federal government as quickly as possible, now realizing that we have a legal responsibility to do that, but we have an ethical and moral responsibility to take care of the veteran as well. So coming up with a payment plan that works for the veteran, and in some cases, you know, we a, a debt may be created for a veteran, but it doesn't mean the veteran's going to pay the debt. We provide avenues for waivers, disputes, compromises. And a lot of times uh, when they contact our call center and contact to our, our uh, debt counselors who go under a rigorous 13-week training program mm-hmm. uh, to handle calls, to de-escalate calls when necessary, that they'll help that veteran uh, pursue a path that works for them. And a lot Im- of times- I, I can imagine some calls that you get. <laughs> yes. And frankly, we've had members from Congress that have come out and actually listened in the calls and walked away with a greater understanding of uh, how we work with veterans to resolve their individual circumstances. Very good. A couple other things that uh, of note that I, I, I that were sent to me in emails, uh, call wait times from 45 minutes down to two minutes. That's incredible. That's incredible. Um, wait times for, for you know the evaluation of their documents, three weeks to 72 hours. Um, your employees aren't leaving anymore. You had employee turnover from 30% to 4%. Um, what kind of difference does do, do these st- stats make in, in what you do? I think the difference is, one, uh, leadership makes all the difference. A process, uh, an improvement, those are all fantastic. We have to do continual process improvement, but really demonstrating leadership. Leadership, one, that looks as an advocate for a veteran first. Two, really make sure our employees, you talked about the reduction in attrition in our organization. That doesn't just happen because we're improving processes. We value our employees. And if we expect our debt management center, debt counselors, and our employees to deliver an exceptional product uh, for a veteran, we better make sure, one, we're engaging them. We're inspiring them to be their best. And we tell them every day we provide a culture where they can come to work and do their best work uh, and have a passion for what they do. Yeah. And as you mentioned earlier, we hire about roughly 40% of our uh, employment population at the Debt Management Center are veterans, and even more than that, of course, are related to veterans. It, so. it was one of your uh, employees that initially reached out to you about this show, right? If, I, if I'm not right? If it I'm was, not correct, yeah. Looking Tracy, at that. Uh, I'd like to give a shout out to her because uh, she really had said, have you thought about Born the Battle? And we are doing all these outreach events. And I said, you know, I hadn't really thought about doing Born the Battle, and uh, how do we go about doing that? And she gave me some information to reach her office. So Sounds like you have a unique culture up there in Minnesota. Um, read your commander's intent, if you will. You, you make your employees swear in? Yeah, our employees do swear in. Uh, every employee meets with me individually. Uh, after they meet with me, we talk about our philosophy, intent, and role. For those people that are military, you'll understand this is commander's intent. So really outline what our culture is, why we hire people who are dedicated to service, to service veterans. Then after that, we swear in and they raise the right hand and they repeat after me. And then we shake hands and, and they've made a full commitment, not only to the Department of Veteran Affairs, but they also feel an entire commitment to a veteran. 
Very good. What what drove you to make these changes? Uh, were there certain military leadership traits or principles that you learned uh, during your military career to see this through? Uh, what, what are your guiding principles to, to both you gentlemen? I would say uh, coming from an army environment and for Joe, coming from a Marine Corps environment where you know the principle of servant leadership are set at the foundation of everything we do, I think first and foremost, uh, encompassing the organization that way, we take care of our employees and we establish a, uh, a principle-based versus a rules-based environment. So, you know, first and foremost, we're going to take care of veterans first. You know, if this rule is not applicable in this situation, then we got to do the right thing to care of the, take care of the veterans. So I think first and foremost is setting those conditions that we're going to do all we can to take care of the veterans. We're not going to just hang up the phone at four minutes because the phone calls too long. If it takes us 45 minutes to do the right thing to care, take care of the veteran, we're going to do that. Um, and as a matter of fact, we had a veteran that was having a bad day on a call. We followed uh, him through a 45-minute phone call um, to get him to a provider at a VA medical center uh, so that he could get the care that he needed. So the bottom line, again, is our, our staff, our organizational culture is, um, again, principle-based. We're going to do what we have to do to take care of the veteran. I think that really uh, set the tone of change. And once that occurs, you know, we may not have the visibility right up front of what needs to evolve to make it better, but our employees understand a lot of times, or the veteran does, or the veteran service organization does. And so um, we've put that awareness out there. And so if there's better ideas or better ways to to make process changes, uh, we have a whole team of stakeholders and veterans that help us do that. Very good. Yeah. And I think for me, it really is, it's listening. Uh, if we would just listen to the veterans and, and see their complaints and read their complaints, listen to the feedback we receive on our phones, uh, there's a huge call to action there. I'd also say that we listen to Congress. Congress has reached out, right? Many veterans use congressional inquiry to a means to reach out to them. And so they're a great feedback network to us. Veteran service organizations speak very loudly, right? Not only here in Washington, D.C., but across the country as a representative for veterans. And so listening to what the veteran service organizations have to say. And then when we think about how we implement those improvements, we don't do that alone. Yeah. Uh, yesterday, we were just meeting with the uh, national director for uh, the American Legion, and we're partnering on these activities to say, how do we move forward? And earlier you mentioned, you know, they, these rules are created. We don't have an opportunity to change them. And I would tell you, uh, both uh, Jason and I are very fortunate enough, and Pam, you don't meet Pam Lyons today, but she's our other strategic director, is that we have an opportunity to change the law, and we are. And so we're moving forward with some great legislation this next year to really think about how we deliver better services to veterans in a more timely fashion, in a manner that makes a difference to them especially in an environment which you talked about earlier, is overpayments, the VA made overpayment. How do we then go back to the veteran and, and make that right? Gotcha. What are some of the ways that you're, you're able to, uh, what do you train some of your employees to to look for to, or to de-escalate? What are some some strategies that you guys employ? Um, well, I guess based on the phone call, um, you know, they're all different. Um, and again, some days if, if a veteran's having a bad day and maybe doesn't understand the language, is one using a calming voice, um, getting back to the source of the problem so that the counselor can help solve the problem. I mean, and some, sometimes people are angry, obviously, um, but getting the de-escalated to a point so that the counselor can explain the options, um, I think is first and foremost, um, you know, what we, what we employ on those calls um, and trying to do it quickly, but also in a means that provides enough time to, to resolve the issue. I think one, team that, one thing that your team does really well too is they partner with Veterans Health Administration and other experts in crisis management. I mean, when I listen to these, and I think when Congress listened to these phone calls uh, and members of their staff were on our phone calls working with veterans and listening to how we interact with veterans, the ability for them to de-escalate the phone call, to come to an appropriate solution, and what maybe started out as a, as a difficult phone call uh, really ended up being, hey, we are at a common place to take care of a veteran and, and provide a solution in that repayment, to seek a waiver, seek a dispute, uh, provide for a compromise, whatever that is. In many cases, uh, they don't have to pay the debt, right? Uh, that is one of the certain options, but there are many opportunities for them to, to think about a waiver or dispute. But that training that they provide and, you know, they go through a 13 and a half week academy and then every about three to four months, they're pulled out. The, the debt counselors are pulled out of the office to really think about how they can deliver a better experience to a veteran. So it's a constant cycle of improvement and, you know, partner with people who are experts like the Department of Veterans Affairs, uh, Veterans Health Administration. 
Very good. Uh, I would add too, is just enhancements to our infrastructure and our technology. Um, it used to be, it would take a while, uh, maybe upwards of three weeks for us to see that we received a waiver request. Now, as I think you indicated earlier, we can see that like within 24 hours some days. So when a veteran calls us, uh, we're enhancing our systems for that deck counselor to see all the systems at once, uh, contrary to having to go into different systems. But when they can do that, they can look and validate that the veteran did send a waiver, and yes, we did receive it, and yes, we're working on it. Um, and so I think that in itself helps put people at calm knowing that we're actioning their requests. Absolutely. Just to know that someone is hearing you uh, it sometimes helps helps the situation. Um, guiding the financial future of veterans. How do you, I think you've you've talked to it a little bit, but how overall how do you accomplish that? I think when we think about um, debt collections in general, corporate debt collections, we don't often take into account the customer. I, I pay taxes every year, and often the IRS works with me, and we work very closely with the IRS. I have nothing ill to say about them. They have a mission and a job, but the manner in which they do it and their customer <coughs> base is different. So for the Department of Veterans Affairs Debt Management Center, we have a veteran. Uh, we have a very important customer. And so I think it's not uh, enough just to solely understand that there is an overpayment made by the VA, whether uh, that overpayment would be resulted from a veteran action or a VA inaction. We have to respond in a manner that really best looks out for the financial future of the veteran. And so we work today with every veteran uh, to come up with the appropriate plan whether that be the dispute or the waiver or the repayment plan. And we work that with them. We don't we yeah, you no talked about You talked about 12 months. Are there other options that you can do, like based on income? Yes, there's certainly options. We work every uh, every one of those individually. I would say, we'll just use an example. If it took uh, the Veterans Benefits Administration or the VHA uh, six months to work through a problem, they come back and said this debt is valid, we'll provide them the equivalent uh, time, or if it even took two years, the equivalent time to make a repayment plan. So it's commensurate. So if there was three years for the VA to figure this out, there would be a three-year uh, repayment plan. But also if they're in high cases where Jason mentioned earlier, where it maybe be dependency or drill pay or, or change a rate of pursuit in education, those often can be high dollar debts. Yeah. Uh, we do what we call a financial status report. And that form is filled out by the veteran. We review that form. We validate that form with the veteran. And then we come up with a, an appropriate payment plan together. We also look at the individual circumstances of the veteran. So if a 10-year payment plan is what right looks like, then that's what we're going to do. But while we're doing that, if the veteran wants to request a waiver, then we're going to forward the waiver uh, to what's referred to as the Committee of Waivers and Compromises. And they look, what it, they look at equity and good conscience. And so if they determine it would be against equity and good conscience to continue to collect an overpayment, then they'll waive it. Um, and some of the things they look at is who's at fault. Is the VA at fault or is the veteran at fault? And they'll make those considerations. Um, That's awesome to hear. Yeah, when they make that decision. And so a lot of times if a veteran calls us in need, um, we'll work exp to ex expedite that request as fast as possible to get it turned around so that we can take care of that veteran. That's awesome. Looking at uh, some other th uh, principles that were in your email, create an experience that is so well served they tell others. Got an example? Yeah, I have a couple that come to mind. We recently had a veteran uh, write to the debt management center to a very specific employee and shared a poem. And in her poem, uh, in his poem to her, one of our, our debt counselors, he outlined how difficult his life has been, how difficult service was for him, uh, how difficult uh, his transition to civilian life was. But if there was one guiding light or one ability for him to see the bright light of the future, um, it was her. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was really impactful. Matter of fact, uh, the uh, the chief financial officer of VA, uh, Mr. John Rychelski, keeps that in his wallet. And he often shares it at every chance he gets. But uh, it was in a poem that was very impressive. But we probably get 50 to 60 letters uh, every month or two where veterans are reaching out to us, thanking us. And so those are also very helpful for us to look where we're doing things right. We leverage those employees who get those accolades to help other employees uh, to really get that right consistently. So we, while we'd like to see that all the time, you think about any <laughs> any any company you, you got it there's a process for improvement yeah and i think when you're in especially in the field of debt how often do i have to repay a debt and then i'm gonna write a letter to thank the person that i'm indebted to that's not very common no not at all no but that really goes back to our employees they don't write joe schmidt and say that to me but they do <laughs> uh, to our debt counselors that work for jason and they do uh, an amazing job got you 
within the confines of federal law, correct, accurately, timely, and with compassion, uh, taking account a veteran's unique circumstances. Do do accurately and timely ever conflict with compassion? And how do you help mitigate that? And you've talked a couple of ways that you've done it, but. I don't think so. Again, you know, we're principle-based versus rules-based, and we're going to work with the veteran uh, compassionately, develop a, a solution that works for them. The only pl- the only time that we might not be is in the case of uh, fraud. Um, if there's fraud involved, then that's a different approach, of course. Sure. Somebody's fraud in the government, and then, unfortunately, it does happen sometimes, and we take appropriate action. Yeah, I'd say the same for me. Uh, although I think having been indebted uh, to a large extent, uh, like I mentioned, uh, a great dollar amount, the weight of that is, is crippling to many. And so I think at times when I think about how we employ the law, like 38 CFR 1.911 talks about how we collect, um, but it is how we train and how we are modus operandi in our building and how we work with veterans, that's where the compassionate piece takes. So I really see the the legal piece, the requirement of the law to collect is what you had mentioned. And then how do we tie in that compassion piece? It is by being, well, good Midwest ethics and values in Minnesota. That's where our call center is located and that's where our workforce is located. Uh, But I'd also say that they just really understand the veteran. They've listened to a lot of veterans in need. And I think if anybody did that for a long period of time, that compassion comes out almost naturally from them. The way you you recited that statute made me shudder. It made me think of uh, like the uniform order that I used to have to repeat as a staff and CEO. Yes, <laughs> very similar. <laughs> just fired it right out there. Um, you know everything that you're talking about. This is where I can see where you're, you're more than just a collection arm, honestly. Um, and that's why I wanted to do this interview, uh, especially if you're helping them fill out that you actually help them to fill out the paperwork where they can potentially get a waiver. That's huge. Absolutely. That's huge. And we um, educate them on how to do that too. That's not an easy process, right? It goes to like Jason mentioned to the Committee on Waivers and Compromises, which falls in the Veterans Benefits Administration. It's going across, it's cross-cutting the agency, you know, the largest single agency in the federal government, Department of Veterans Affairs. So uh, that's significant. And as, as we more fo- move forward, we're, we're working to enable to have all this available online ultimately so that our debt letters would be online and we're working a request right now through some technology enhancements to make that that happen. I think I've seen that on your on your page on VA.gov. I think I've gone over there and I've seen on the right-hand side, you have the, you know, if you want to redo a waiver, if you uh, frequently ask questions, you have all, all that kind of stuff already, already kind of built in there. But you're looking at doing more? Yeah, so I think maybe the frequently asked questions are there, but in, uh, as far as enabling the means for a veteran to do something about it and see his or her debt lighter and then their debt volume, um, we're not quite there yet. Uh, okay, so they have, can actually go in and see their individual account. That's where you want to go. Yes, eventually. Very that's, good. That's further down the road. But uh, the near-term goal is to provide the letter um, and then electronic notification to their email address that there's a letter for them to look at. We, yeah, we talked about going across the agency, and the Veterans Experience Office does a fantastic job adding value to veterans every day, but they've partnered with us, too, and to really think about, hey, we need to get you out there in a stronger presence on va.gov and have that single point of contact to you electronically that allows veterans to engage with you that way, because we still do a ton of mail, a ton of phone calls, but there's a, a population out there that really wants to be online, and we need to be ahead of that and be with that population too. Yeah, and there will be a blog on this episode on blogs.va.gov, but you're more than welcome to at any point in time if, to write your own blog on that website. If you go into the right hand t- t- or if you go to the right hand side of the tabs on blogs.va.gov, it gives you a chance to write a guest blog, and our two editors um, they read it and they'll 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 edit it and post it. So that's if fantastic. You ever want to write a blog? I mean, we get three million hits a month. We'll take advantage of that. Okay, yeah. and, and we share it on we share those on social media and all, all kinds of stuff. So, yeah, absolutely. Feel like uh, write write one whenever you want. Um, and then to add to that, you know, really building our systems based on human centric design and enhancing from the user perspective as we do this digital transformation. And so most of our systems have built as legacy systems based upon the needs of EBA or the needs of that program, but adapting those so that we can provide those services. More, realistic, more realistically and better um, by enhancing, again, the user-centric design at the user level. And so, again, Focusing that's, on the needs of the veteran. Exactly. Yeah, very good. Uh, it seems like you've improved the experience for veterans. And, and oh, yeah, you've also collected $1.7 billion. You're also doing your job um, in, erroneous, in erroneous overpayments. 
Um, but you also have to serve the veterans who, which you guys have already spoken about. Um, just because they have a debt doesn't mean you have to wipe them out. And you've talked about ways to prevent that. I've got a friend that didn't know about your office at all. And, and of course, here I am. I'm going to get to, to, to personal experiences. He said the VA came in after his income tax just recently, wiped him out, wiped out the income tax, and he just lost his job. Is that a case that your office could step in and help him out in figuring out how to best repay the, repay the VA? Yeah. So in that case, um, why that would happen would be if we had um, sent a few letters out um, we're required by law at 120 days when a, when a debt becomes 120, del, 120 days delinquent. We're required again to give that debt to Treasury so the jurisdiction passes. And when that happens, U.S. Treasury looks for other sources of payment, which could include an IRS payment. It could be Social Security, OPM salary, railroad retirement. And we don't have jurisdiction at that point. Okay. Um, so if, if Treasury has taken those funds, it's because they have jurisdiction. But what we can do is work with Treasury to possibly put him on some type of hardship um, and possibly refund the funds, but we would have to work with the U.S. Treasury to do that. Gotcha. So it might be it might take a bit. Um, is it, can he still come in and and ask for like guidance now at this situation that he's currently in? Um, so in, in that situation, there could be other things too. And one of the things that we've changed over the last few years is that if we have a drilling guardsman or reserve and reservist that deploys in harm's way and they have a debt for whatever reason that surfaced maybe right before they departed, maybe they dropped their rate of pursuit, um, and they weren't around or their um, family situation was such that they were just working to survive, let alone read these letters from VA, um, that when that veteran comes back and shows us his or her deployment orders that we're going to, if we had sent it to Treasury, we're going to pull all that back, we're going to refund any fees that took place just to give the veteran the benefit of the doubt because he or she was deployed in harm's way. And so again, we're gonna do right by that. Uh, so that'd be one example. Uh, if, we've, if we referred it in air for some reason, we're gonna pull it back and refund any of those fees. Uh, but again, once the jurisdictions pass and it was referred legally, uh, then we're a little bit more restrained in what we can do. Very good. We can still work with him though. That's what we're saying. We need yeah. to figure that out and see what took place there. So we'll be happy to, uh, to work with this veteran too. Very good. And I would also add, so one of the other things we're working on currently to quest a waiver, it has to be done within 180 days. As I referred that, we refer that uh, debt at 120 days to, to Treasury by law. We're looking to expand out that waiver window to 360 days. So if the veteran came back and had a waiver approved after he had gone to Treasury, well, in that case, that, that debt would be adjusted and we had pull it back. So if there's things like that, or if the creation of the debt was done in error and the veteran disputed it after it was referred, well, then we would refer to an incorrect debt uh, if the dispute was validated as being as inaccurate. Uh, so in that case, again, there too, then we would pull it back. It's getting, in the, it's getting in a lot of weeds. But basically, he can call yeah. and say, hey, where, where, where can we go yes. from here? Yeah. Gotcha. Very good. Very good. Um, can you recall any other examples where, where your office was able to help a veteran in, like, say, a similar situation or – or any situations where they, they called, didn't know where to start, and you got them from A to B? Yeah, I can think of many cases. Um, in one such case, it was a dependent of a veteran, and uh, the dependent of the veteran was really concerned about, one, not only the amount of the debt, and two, the, the payment of the debt. And at this time, the the uh, the member was deployed overseas. And so we had to kind of really help her understand the letters that she was receiving. They were a reservist? Yeah, they were reservists. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, and they also were, like I said, deployed. So we had to really walk her through that. And once again, we would just assume that dependents, loved ones of people who are serving in the military armed services, just understand all the processes. They don't. And so we spend a great deal of time walking through, having understanding, sharing what the reason was, how the debt was first created, uh, where we are now. We made it very clear that you know, the, the DMC doesn't establish the debt, but we have the debt process. Yeah. So we walk, walk through and we're able to help them achieve a payment plan that was one, understandable, and two, she's able to communicate with her husband overseas. The military nowadays has the ability to do what you do and communicate overseas on video teleconference and they're it's, able to come to an agreement and a solution. Communication is an amazing thing. Uh, like, yeah, like you said, when, when we were deployed, we didn't have this. We didn't have this phone call to, to, to austere environments that they do now. Um, incredible. Uh, now, we're not going to name names because I want to show that this show is apolitical and the focus is on the veteran. But share me about the time that you had to testify on the Hill and the visit you had shortly after. 
and what Congress learned about your office. You, you kind of kind of touched on it a little bit, but. Yeah, you no, had, this you, had is very, a, you had a very specific story. I did. Last September, uh, we uh, testified before the House Veteran Affairs Committee. And two days after testifying, and that was on a Thursday, we had the Friday and the following Monday, uh, that congressman was in my office to really see how- In Minnesota. Uh, in Minnesota. And the Congress was in session. Wow. Uh, they came out and visited with our team. We had to prepare very quickly. Uh, but one of these types of visits, he really wanted to see what it was like. He said the presentations were, you know, wonderful and he got a, a great understanding. But when he, like we mentioned earlier, was on a phone call and saw how our debt counselors interacted with a veteran uh, and how they were indebted, that really made all the difference. And he said before he had left, I will go back and dispel the mistruths and lies about the VA's Debt Management Center to Congress so that we then can take forward action and make sure that we are seen in a good light. And one, that's really a veteran advocate. And then most recently, just a few weeks ago, uh, the ranking member and or the uh, the majority member uh, came out to visit us as well. So we've had both sides of the House Veteran Affairs Committee uh, within the, the walls of the VA's Debt Management Center in Minnesota, wow. which is an honor. But when we think about constituents and we think about our leaders in our nation, they care. And when they ask questions and they, they hold the VA accountable, which is partly their job, uh, they do follow up. And I'm glad you know that they did so. And today we're making great progress, not only once again with veterans, with VSOs, but with Congress as one team moving forward in support of veterans. Yeah, I would add, you know, we can talk the talk all day long on these type of settings or on testimony, but, you know, to walk the walk and show, uh, put the money where your mouth is. That's you put to the it, test like that. Yeah. Without little warning. And, and we welcome that. Very good. Very good. Um, gentlemen, we've covered a lot of ground. We've covered a lot of ground. Um, am I missing anything? Is there anything that we may have missed that you think it might be important to share to anybody who might listen to this? Just that we continue to strive for improvements. We know that we do make mistakes. And when we do, we're going to do everything we can to fix them. And we're going to continue to make this a better for the veteran at every moment that we can. And I think earlier you were going to touch on it, the $1.7 billion that we collect every year reduces the appropriations that the VA has to be appropriated for. That money doesn't come to the VA's debt management center. It goes back to help traumatic brain injury. It goes back to the hospitals and to the appropriation from which it came. So if that debt, origina if that debt originated in Veterans Health Administration, it goes back to VHA. If that debt originated in Veterans Benefits Administration, it goes back to the CFO, to that administration to best use to support veteran programs. And so when we think about the collection at the VA's Debt Management Center, and those are required by law, in those cases where they don't have to be collected, we don't, we waive or compromise. Um, but that money goes back to support veterans. Getting out of the military, I was missing this camaraderie. It's frustrating when you try and talk to people that don't understand. I still had the anger, I still had the addictions, but we didn't talk about that. Came to a point where it's like, okay, I really need to talk to somebody about this. Family more or less encouraged me, you know, go, go to the VA. It's okay to go get help. It's okay to talk to people, because it takes true strength to ask for help. Hear veterans' real stories of strength and recovery at maketheconnection.net. I want to thank Joseph and Jason for taking the time to talk with us about the Debt Management Center. For more information on the center, you can visit va.gov forward slash debtman, D-E-B-T man. And if you currently have a VA debt question or need temporary financial relief of a VA debt due to COVID-19 or a hurricane or wildfires, please call the DMC at one 800 827-0648. I think if you heard from the two leaders of the Debt Management Center, I think you'll know that you're going to get uh, helped really well. Our Veteran of the Week nomination was a write-up I saw on our Facebook page, uh, the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs uh, Facebook. Go ahead and like the page and visit it every once in a while to receive info and updates and some good stories like the one we're about to ready to tell you. And I also think that this was sent into our Facebook page by alaska.va.gov. World War II veteran Louis G. Palmer turned 100 years old this Saturday on August 29th. 
During World War II, Palmer worked as one of the Navy Seabees in the Pacific, following the Marines to different islands to perform construction after they had moved in. Humble about his contribution, he says, I'm just one of the crew. What they did, I did. We did our mission. One vivid memory Palmer has from that period happened right at the start of the war. He was traveling from California to Seattle by bus. When the war broke out, they had to drive two to three days by night with no lights on. Palmer says that there was great fear that the lights would tip off submarines where things were going on the coast. After the war, Palmer continued to work as a building contractor in California. And then in 1964, the Great Alaskan Earthquake happened. A friend came knocking at Palmer's door, asking him to move to Alaska to help with the repair work. He thought the job would be short, but soon he decided to overstay his visit, and he's been in Alaska ever since. If you walk around Anchorage, Alaska, you can see a lot of Palmer's work, as he supervised the building of many of the high-risers, including the Captain Cook Hotel. When asked if he had any advice he wished that he had known when he was younger, Palmer says no. I was a little pig-headed, did my own thinking, and I don't think I would have taken too much advice. <laughs> Navy veteran Lewis G. Palmer, thank you for your service and happy birthday. That's it for this week's episode. If you yourself would like to nominate a Born the Battle Veteran of the Week, you can. Just send me an email to podcast at va.gov, include a short write-up, and let us know why you'd like to see him or her as the Born the Battle Veteran of the Week. And if you like this podcast episode, hit the subscribe button. We're on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, pretty much any podcatching app on a phone, computer, tablet, or man. For more stories on veterans and veteran benefits, check out our website, blogs.va.gov, and follow the VA on social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, RallyPoint, DEPT Vet Affairs, U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. No matter the social media, you can always find us with that blue check mark. And as always, I am reminded by people smarter than myself to remind you that the Department of Veterans Affairs does not endorse or officially sanction any entities that may be discussed in this podcast nor any media products or services they may provide. Thank you again for listening, and we'll see you right here next week. Take care.